0: share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun, talk about food history and how food connects and defines us.
1: So if you've ever eaten, prepared or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you.
0: Hi, Leigh. Hey, Kim. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. Thank you. How are you? I'm great. It's uh, sunny 82 up here in the mountains and uh, beautiful. Just a gorgeous day. Oh,
1: well, we're a little cooler over here. We're rocking 63 and a little overcast. Uh, We locals like to call it January because it doesn't quite feel like summer yet, but I know any day now we're going to come with that full force sunshine. This is the time of year that makes those of us in the Pacific Northwest start to have amnesia about the rest of the year (laughs) with it being overcast and gray. So we're about to hit that sweet spot but we're not quite there yet we're still enjoying the gifts of the spring lots of flowers blooming and vegetables growing and sprouting and farmers markets are active and it's it's good fun good time of year i was thinking about our episode last week about wedding foods and i think we had the idea to talk about one of the most popular wedding gifts ever it's a real cookware powerhouse And it's one of my personal favorite tools in the kitchen, the Dutch oven. So just to frame real quick what a Dutch oven is before we dive into this incredible tool. Dutch oven, as I think of it, is a thick-walled cooking pot with a tight-fitting lid, usually made from cast iron. Cast iron is a gold star standard today, but I'm also going to briefly walk us back to how humans started off cooking their foods in general. I promise it won't be too long of a walk. You know, the funny thing is, if the average modern cook were to time travel back to ancient Rome, they'd actually find a lot of stuff that was pretty recognizable. Bronze and copper pots, scissors, funnels, kettles, colanders. In many ways, the true basics of how we cook our foods has had a really slow evolution. But As humans, we unlock the idea of how to change the condition of our food from raw to cooked which made some foods tastier, actually makes some foods that are poisonous in their raw form, edible, or even nutritious when they're cooked. Humans started off roasting various foods on a stick over a fire, which eventually graduated to spit roasting. The idea that we didn't burn our hands along with our mammoth meat. Where I think we may not give full credit to human ingenuity is that there was a parallel track of invention, of molding, firing, and using clay, which opened up techniques like boiling and braising. So instead of having all the yummy juices running off of your meat into the fire, we were able to capture that into the flavor of our foods when they were cooked in a vessel over fire. In the 1960s, an archeological site in Turkey unveiled an unparalleled cache of kitchen pottery belonging to a Neolithic community that included all manners of bowls, all-purpose utensils, drinking cups, and even a food warmer, all made out of clay. By the Greek and Roman eras of antiquity, metals and metal alloys like gold, silver, copper, and bronze came into the kitchen along with glass, and the hardships of the Middle Ages caused humans to have to band together around communal hearts and tables, So a communal stew might be served from a metal cauldron with dozens of previous meals adding flavor, much like the mother casserole that we talked about in our casseroles episode. And if the cauldron sprang a leak, which was, you know, going to (laughs) happen at some point, it could easily be patched with another bit of metal. And in this way, these things survived just centuries Brass was the preferred metal for cookware largely through the late 17th century when European producers started experimenting with ways to use less expensive metal alloys. I will not be going into the weeds about iron making, but suffice (laughs) it to say that cast iron pots emerged in the United States, actually America, in 1696 when the Saugus Ironworks near Lynn, Massachusetts, produced its first cook pot, now known as the Saugus Pot. The sagas Pot is only 4.5 inches in diameter and 3 pounds, so it's relatively small, but it represented a monumental shift in self-sufficiency for a young colony. Up to that point, metalware came to America from Western Europe, specifically for American colonists, mostly from England. So the sagas Pot represents a culmination of materials, production knowledge, and real need that further fueled an ultimate desire to be independent from Great Britain. According to the American Foundry Society, quote, the 1750 Iron Act made it illegal for colonists to build rolling or slitting mills, trip hammers, and furnaces used to produce nails, wrought iron, and steel. The Iron Act also discouraged production of iron goods that had been made with its equipment in the colonies. The law meant that colonists would have to purchase finished iron goods at a much higher cost from Great Britain. End quote. So let's just take a beat to appreciate this moment, because even though it's a very technical and esoteric point, this was a monumental point in American history. So to rephrase, up to this point, production is happening in Great Britain. They've tore down just about every tree they could find in order to fuel furnace mills. Obviously not every tree, but they were starting to run out. Meanwhile, there's this entire continent full of beautiful native woods. Trees were starting to be cut down in the Americas in order to send it back to Great Britain to produce iron. I didn't know that. Yeah. In this country, we had all these really rich deposits of ore and coke and trees. And so instead of shipping all that across the seas, which could take months to get from America to Britain, if it even arrived at all, some folks figured, let's just start making stuff at the source. Milling companies sent production specialists here to establish mills so that production could happen faster. But Great Britain didn't want the American colonists to have this. They didn't want that to happen because that would have made us self-sufficient. So that's what that 1750 rule is all about. It's about, no, you're not allowed to make anything because we want you to have to rely on us for this. And by being able to do that for ourselves was part of our American Revolution, especially when our mother country was like, no, we don't want you to do that. So a revolution hinging on this tiny little cookware pot. Up till now, what I've been describing really is basic bare cast iron. And I think most chefs and cooks have a handle on how great it is for high-temperature cooking, from searing and frying to braising, long-cooking stews. But I think that when we talk about modern Dutch ovens in particular, we might have something in mind from perhaps Le Creuset, Staub, or Lodge that actually has a vitreous enamel glaze that prevents rusting and eliminates the need to consistently season the metal. And now at this point in my research, I got bored. So I'm going to wrap up the technology so that we can talk about food and how one pot can launch a thousand meals. Lay, what do you want to talk about?
0: It's so interesting that you talk about this innovation of the American colonists. To jump back to so many of our past episodes, we've talked about food and ingredient symbolism and how, when those foods or ingredients were ingested, they were viewed to have this power to impart specific qualities on the eater. When I was researching Dutch ovens, the thing that really struck me was how many articles and references describe the Dutch oven, not necessarily based. Based on its physical characteristics but on the way that it almost defined the characteristics of a people that employed it. And this was especially true when it came to its use in North America. And again I want to be clear that the Dutch ovens that I'm talking about are those raw cast-iron Dutch ovens. The ones that don't have the enamel or the special finishes on them. Some of the phrases and descriptions that I came across were decidedly American, Sturdy and versatile, (laughs) cut out for life on the road, durable and indispensable. They seemed to become almost emblematic of this hardiness and fortitude that was demonstrated in early American colonists, the westward moving settlers, the fortune seeking 49ers, and the cattle driving cowboys. And to root this concept of the Dutch oven being America's cooking vessel even further, there were a couple of stories that I ran across that involved American icons. And whether they're true or they're folktale, I can't be certain. But the fact that the stories live on gives credence to the importance of the messages of both of these stories. So the first story revolves around Paul Revere, that American industrialist and metalsmith who took the historic midnight ride it's posited that he was responsible for the innovation of adding the lip to the lid that keeps the coals and ashes from falling into the pot. Again, I wasn't able to find any primary sources that substantiated this, but in many Dutch oven circles and societies, this story is repeated and held in pretty high esteem. Now, the fact is that the change did happen here in the United States or in America. And the change happened not long after the introduction of the Dutch oven. The first recorded documentation of the Dutch oven was in the late 1700s, what was being called the Dutch oven. Mm -hmm. And it was as if these independent-seeking Americans were reinventing this kitchen staple because iron cooking vessels have been used, well since the Iron Age, Mm -hmm. but they were changing it and reinventing it to fit their culture, this new lifestyle in the colonies. And back to your point about trying to identify Mm -hmm. your society in something that you were producing. Yeah. Just as a quick aside,
1: thinking too about that contrast of that bronze age idea of living in community where the hearth was the center, but this new American north american life where you perhaps didn't stay in one place there was an entire country entire continent to explore and you couldn't just ride back at the end of the day to your cauldron to get your help in of stew you needed to have the stew go with you and so american ingenuity as far as how do we change up this vessel that is a critical part of our lives clearly we didn't go away from the idea of a big pot over the fire but it became perhaps a smaller pot to be set in
0: coals. Yeah. And the second story actually relates to that exploration and it involves two American icons, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark. So on their expedition to survey the Missouri and Columbia rivers across the newly acquired Louisiana territory, they would leave or trade much of their gear that they didn't need any longer along the way. Upon their return, it's said that the only manufactured products that they retained were guns and Dutch ovens. Wow. Right? Again, it, there's this correlation between this rough and rugged life in America and this cooking vessel that helped to fortify and strengthen the people that were using it.
1: Yeah. Because we think about what we cook in them, and it, it's fascinating because it's such a wide, wide variety of things, it's such a versatile tool. You've got your beans, which I think of as being fairly synonymous with the American West. Cornbread or stew, just about anything you can imagine eating, can be made in a Dutch oven.
0: Yeah. And, you know, they also held a social, if not financial, value within the household to the point that many 18th and 19th century wills actually included the disposition of cast iron collections in them. According to John Ragsdale in his book, Dutch Ovens Chronicled, Mary Ball Washington, who was George Washington's mom, specified in her will, dated May 20th, 1788, that one half of her iron kitchen furniture should go to her grandson, Fielding Lewis, and the other half to Betty Carter, a granddaughter. The bequest included ovens, several Dutch. Wow. (laughs) And, you know, I also saw this in more contemporary articles, people talking about specific piece of cast iron that had been passed down from grandmother to mother and then coveted by them, the next generation. So it wasn't just within the 17th, 18th, 19th no. century. It still happens today that these pieces are really valued by the people who understand what they are. Absolutely. You know, that's
1: even true in my own family. I have a smaller piece, but it's a Le Crusoe Dutch oven that when my parents downsized, they were moving to Florida. And so I think they were perhaps foreseeing not so many of the heavier, more substantial meals. So I I took it in. And it's something I remember from my childhood being in the kitchen. I think it must have been a wedding present to them. Go figure. Mm. This thing is still sound. It's 40 something years old
0: and nothing wrong with it. It's weathered the test. Of time. And you know, the other thing, and we talked about this just a little bit. The other thing that I love is that there is this symbiotic relationship between the owner and the vessel itself. Yes. Because in order for the vessel to perform at its peak, the owner of the pan has to maintain the cooking surface, as you had mentioned, which means that you initially have to season it to create this carbonized surface that renders it nonstick. And then after that, you need to condition it after every single use. And generally, this means rubbing a coating of oil over the surface so that it doesn't rust. And you never, ever use soap on your cast iron now enamel's different but cast iron you never use soap on and if you know someone who has a cast iron dutch oven you know that they are the only ones to wash it dry it and condition it if you help out with the dishes that's one dish that's left to the owner Absolutely. And for the vessel, it provides its user with the environment of a fairly consistent heat. And we've talked about the versatility of so many cooking methods. Frying, braising, baking, sautéing, fricasseeing. Mm -hmm. You can use it on electric heat, gas heat, induction heat, the fire, indoors, outdoors. And it also imparts iron into your diet, especially if you cook acidic foods in it. Yum! Yum! Yeah. So if it's not obvious from my excitement about this whole thing, I am a huge fan of cast iron. Almost all of my cookware is cast iron. I do have some of the newfangled enameled versions as well as the OG versions of cast iron, and I use them daily. And I'd like to think that they say that I'm a strong, they're pretty heavy, versatile, indispensable kind of gal. <laughs> I would agree with that assessment. <laughs> You know, in addition
1: to my heritage pot that I've gotten from my parents, I have, and I have no idea how it ended up in my collection, but for literal decades, it's been one of my absolute favorite tools to use. It is actually the flame color that we think of with Le Creuset, which is meant to actually mimic a crucible, the, the fire of a crucible. I love my Dutch oven. I use it a lot, almost every day, if not every day, but I have a hard time finding a space for it in the kitchen. So it either lives on my stovetop. I have an open cabinet. I've got a special spot for it there. Like it moves around my kitchen. My modern kitchen does not actually accommodate the way that I cook. And if I were to remodel my kitchen, which I've started thinking about a lot more often, I would absolutely take into account how the tools that I use, where I want them to be, how accessible are they really, and I just wish we had more thought that goes into kitchen designs about how people cook. And I know we've got this perception of the, the professional chef's kitchen that goes into like new home models that are ridiculous. Like the cupboards are too shallow. They're in weird spots, <laughs> like, like drawers, just not quite where you would keep things that are adjacent to your stove that would be different if it was adjacent to your refrigerator and that's a whole other tangent but
0: you know it's interesting that you talk about that because we haven't talked a lot maybe in a couple of episodes about the fact that my husband and I sold our house, which had a kitchen that was literally designed around the way that we cooked and all of the cast iron that we have. So we've sold the house and we're building out a van. And we have designed that van specifically for the way that we cook and specifically to house the pieces of cast iron that we will be bringing. And I have conceded to not having actual porcelain glass Mm -hmm. dinnerware. So that I can have the cast iron. Mm-hmm. After a while, those pieces are family. They are. We have our favorites. We we know their hot spots
1: and their cold spots. <laughs> My orange pot. It's it's a family member. I can't imagine trying to cook without it i'll yeah. always have to find a home for it
0: i like the fact that you talk about them as a family member because they really there is a familiarity about them they have a specific purpose and when they fulfill that purpose it really makes us yeah. happy
1: yeah Inv- and inviting that you know inviting them to the table to be served and to be passed and 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 revered and respected i'm notorious for kind of anthropomorphizing things but we all have a favorite cup or plate, or bowl, you know, whether we really think about it and admit it or not, there are the things that we turn to the most often in the kitchen, particularly, and and mine Mm -hmm. is definitely my Dutch oven. I'd actually love to hear from our audience. Do you have a favorite piece? Do you have a favorite recipe that you make? Let us hear from you on our social medias as we eat on Facebook and Instagram. Let us know
0: what you think. While we're waiting for them to answer that question, what's your favorite dish to make in your Dutch oven?
1: It's biryani. I have mm. the, the most beautiful, visceral memory of making biryani with my dad. And this was a long time ago. And I was more witness than I was participant to this. It was one of those meals that made a lifetime memory. Everything about it was perfect. And my family gathered at the table. Definitely one of my top 10 favorite meals. I actually use mine a lot myself to make. Chicken soup. Because it has the right volume. It's a very basic recipe with onion and celery and chicken and a little bit of rice and lemon juice is my secret ingredient for that. I I love lemon. That is probably the thing I've made the most in the Dutch oven.
0: How about you, Leigh? What's your favorite? I I think it it depends completely on which Dutch oven I'm using. For my enameled Dutch oven, it's probably green Thai curry. I just love the way that it cooks the curry. I love the way that the curry looks inside mm-hmm. the pot mm-hmm. itself. And then the outdoor Dutch oven probably would have to be some kind of a fruit mm. cobbler, depending upon what fruit is in season. There's almost this treasure kind of hunt yeah. with it, right? When you're cooking with it outdoors and you have the coals that are sitting on top of it and you're just timing and waiting and timing and waiting and you pull it off and you just see it under there with that golden mm. crust and the bubbles yes. coming up from the fruit. Ugh. Yeah. So I think those two things are probably my favorite things to cook it's, in a. It's oven. like a
1: magic trick that you create, mm. and yet you don't, because there's some alchemy. There's obviously the alchemy and the chemistry of cooking that happens, and we are a participant. To the magic trick obviously we're the ones who said we were setting it up right but while things are cooking they're doing their own thing and i just feel like on one hand it's just a tiny bit out of our control alchemy is the only thing i can think of and just sort of this magic trick of yeah. flavors coming together and things crisping or softening at the same time you get the, the golden crust but then your fruit is soft and juicy and sugary and it's how can you have these two things in the same dish at the same time it seems so improbable it's
0: there mm.
1: oh my god i'm so hungry right
0: now. i'm thinking that i am seeing some kind of a fruit cobbler in my future oh, tonight that
1: sounds amazing yesterday i went to my farmer's market and i got some fresh fava beans that are so mm. tender they're fantastic and some garlic scape and some new potatoes and so i'm thinking since it's a cool day here i might go for a little light spring stew and that sounds amazing. Yeah. And some cornbread. I'll, I'm going to break out the cast iron pan and do some cornbread to go with that. So I'm reminded that good materials make for good meals. And so in our next episode, we're going to cover a very popular food that also makes for a great meal. And that is beer. Can't wait.
0: I can't wait either. It's going to be a tasty episode. For more information
1: about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat and join our new As We Eat community on Facebook.
0: And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. It would make us super happy if you would share this with a friend and review it and rate it. Five stars, please. And one more thing, we'll
1: be publishing the as we eat journal a companion publication to the podcast will take you behind the scenes dig deeper into food lore and history share recipes and amazing photos and so much more make sure to sign up on the website for updates
0: oh and one more thing we also have a patreon page where you can support us by becoming a patron we've created an exclusive podcast for our patrons called recipe box roulette we think you're really gonna love it
1: You've been listening to As We Eat, a multimedia project recorded and produced by Leigh Olson and Kim Baker. Obviously.